is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. Hello. Good to have you along this Friday afternoon. Michelle Stanley with you on the Country Hour. Coming up on today's show, you'll head to the Kimberley to check in on the lingering impacts of the Fitzroy Valley flooding. This time to the mouth of the Fitzroy River, where pearl farmers have been waiting with bated breath. The worst case scenario for the pearling industry, if you're in a sheltered bay and you get a freshwater wedge, that means all your, your long lines and your pearl oysters actually then sit in pure fresh water. And if that happens, then all of the pearl oysters die really kind of instantly in the, in the next probably day, you'd find that the whole farm would, would fail. The pearl farmers have done their checks and you'll hear the results of those later this afternoon. Also, one thing I've noticed in my couple of months in this this part of the world is probably just how many people aren't from here. You know, there's this huge mix of people who have come for a visit maybe for a week or two. Decades later, they're still in the Territory. Before half past one, you'll get a taste of life in the NT from the eyes of a foreigner amazing place and I think there's some really interesting wonderful characters up here and I think throw yourself in and and visit and explore it because it is a wonderful wonderful place and you know even though it has its challenges with the heat and things like that I think having that experience itself is also a wonderful and unique thing. I say eyes of a foreigner. I do mean a Victorian, but you can just hear the love she has for the Territory and you'll share a slice of that and plenty more this hour. Make sure you stick around. First up this afternoon, the developer of the Singleton Station Horticultural Project was in Darwin this week, meeting with the business community to discuss how it can be involved in the $250 million project. Fortune Agribusiness wants to build a 3,000 hectare farm on the property 150 kilometres south of Tennant Creek and grow irrigated fruit and vegetables. Now, the project has received a lot of criticism from local traditional owners, some of whom are challenging the company's water licence in the NT courts. Dan Fitzgerald spoke with the company's chairman, Peter Wood. Two main reasons for for coming up, along with, um, I should say I'm here with my CEO and also a couple of other directors. So we're here to, to provide a briefing to local businesses, local industry about the project and where we're at to start getting people aware of the opportunities that uh, will arise once the project gets close to to commencing. Uh, We're also here to meet with the agencies that are assessing our referral to the Environment Protection Authority for environmental approval. And you've been meeting, as you said, with business people this week. Um, What have you been telling them about uh, what sort of businesses you'll need um, to get the project off the ground? Yeah, we've had, uh, we had a good session on Monday afternoon uh, through the Chamber of Commerce, so we met with a number of people uh, at a, an information session there. We also met with um, yesterday with the ICN here in, in Darwin uh, because we want to partner with them to, uh, to source the suppliers and contractors and that that we'll need. Um, but in terms of what, uh, what we will be requiring, once, you know, once we do get through all the approvals and we've got our... Uh, we've got the, uh, the go-ahead to commence the project, which we're hoping to do later this year. Uh, there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of support we require from local industry. So whether it's from uh, 
start off with uh, with drilling bores, uh, in, installing bores through to constructing roads and access, um, fencing, but also you know we, we need to start preparing for our significant planting. So we need to prepare the land for our first crops, uh, which would hopefully happen early early in twenty twenty four. But there's there's a list of about forty different services and contracts we we need to get a project like this underway. And you expect the spending could be $250 million or so. Uh, how much of that work do you think can be serviced from Central Australia and the Barclay region? Look, a lot of it I believe can. Certainly, you know, we, we have a very clear policy to uh, Barclay first, Territory second, elsewhere third in terms of procurement. A lot of the initial uh, and ongoing uh, services we require can be serviced. By, there are companies in the Barclay region in Tenning Creek uh, that offer those services, so we will certainly go there first as first uh, preference. You extend that down to Alice Springs and, and around Central Australia. We're hopeful of getting a lot of that, uh, a lot of that locally. Um, that 250 mil you mentioned—that's the the capital cost, estimated capital cost of the whole project. So it's that's de- the developments over a nine-year period. So it's not all happening on on year one. And what that does obviously in the first the first phase where we need a lot of this preliminary work uh, we'll get as much of that done locally as we can but given that it's a nine-year development program we're hopeful that some of the local businesses who may not be geared up to provide a lot of service in year one you know can gear up for years three four five or whatever down the track so as well as um, hopefully uh, new businesses uh, start to uh, are created if you like to uh, to service it was the project as a catalyst to uh, to get started, including Indigenous-owned businesses. Over the next few days, you'll also be <coughs> meeting with farmers. What sort of reaction do you expect to get from them? Because you know this horticultural project, you say it could potentially lift um, the NT's horticultural output by 60%. When you're talking with farmers, do you think um, they'll be concerned about competition or the like? What, what sort of reaction are you expecting? Uh, well, you're right, Dan. We, we're, we're in Darwin at the moment. We're heading down to Tenning Creek for a, a, a Chamber of Commerce-led um, information session for the local people in Tenning Creek on Monday, and then we're going on down to Alice Springs for a similar session on the following Thursday. And along the way, we are meeting with a number of people in the ag space, if you like, in the ag sector. Look, I'm aware of a, of a few individuals who are perhaps sceptical or not totally supportive, but... By and large, the vast majority of people I've spoken to in, in the ag sector in the Northern Territory are very excited by the project and very supportive. And um, we've had, you know, very strong encouragement from the, from the industry in general. Fortune Agribusiness, it certainly won't be the first company to come to the Territory with a, a big project, promising big spending, big employment. What do you say to people who might think that, you know, Singleton Station will just be another project that's just too big to get off the ground and another failure? For the Northern Territory, yeah, we've heard that a lot, and we are aware of a lot of um, a number of uh, case studies, if you like, that uh, have gone down that path. Um, one thing that we we've been very conscious of is to start relative. Well, it's, it will be ultimately a big project, no no question on that. But it's take it's going to take a nine year development phase, so we'll be developing the project over nine years. Uh, we've got four distinct phases of development, stages of development. Um, so we're not we're not sort of jumping in there wanting to spend 250 mil in the first couple of years and uh, expect to be able to get that up and running and, and working efficiently 
straight away, we've got a very, very much a staged development program. If you're just tuning in, this is The Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald, and you're hearing from Peter Wood, the chairman of Fortune Agribusiness, the company behind uh, plans for the Singleton Horticultural Project, a, a large um, fruit and vegetable project planned um, for south of Tennant Creek. Peter, traditional owners have raised a lot of concerns about environmental impacts of the project. Uh, there's a decision um, on your company's water licence pending in the NT Supreme Court uh, that was uh, launched by traditional owners. Uh, do you think you'll be able to get Indigenous people to work at Singleton? Well, the, we will do everything we possibly can, Dan, to, uh, <coughs> to encourage them to, to be part of this. We're not expecting on day one to uh, have a huge number of Indigenous people, but we are already talking to... Um, education providers and the like and others to work out how we can go right back to grassroots and and help to create the pathways for Indigenous people in that Barclay region to become, you might say, job ready for um, <clears throat> for work in, in, in our project and, and also to support them to become job ready for similar work in the horticulture sector uh, in that Barclay region or elsewhere for that matter. The, the project ultimately will support something like 420 full-time equivalent permanent positions. That's <coughs> uh, probably a third to 40% of those will be on the farm itself and the rest will be in various um, support areas, supply chain, uh, jobs, etc., um, which will make a dramatic difference to the economy of the Barclay region and is one of the few opportunities, I believe, for the... Uh, what is a fairly disadvantaged area um, uh, to really lift the livelihoods and uh, of the people in that Barkby region. As I've said, um, some traditional owners have, have raised concerns about potential environmental impacts, especially yes. in terms of potential groundwater drawdown. <clears throat> what have you done to, to take those concerns on board? Uh, well, we've had to comply with very rigorous uh, requirements that are imposed on us through through the water licence and through, um, I guess, the water allocation plan and the, the government processes that have put quite strict criteria on the limits of impacts, if you like, on groundwater-dependent ecosystems and the like. So we've we've modelled some 45 different layouts for our ball field to ensure that uh, our the, the impact of our ball field and the drawdown on the aquifer will be well within uh, the prescribed limits. That, that work has been undertaken and the, and the ball for, and but for the local people um, it's quite an, quite an exercise and a responsibility in us to educate the local people about what that means and how that aquifer will behave. Uh, we really want them involved in designing the monitoring program with us uh, and being part of the actual monitoring itself. Uh, we're hoping that the uh, we, we can encourage the ranger program to get involved and help with the monitoring uh, work that will be carried out continuously right through the life of the project but it is an education uh, requirement on our part too and we're hopeful that uh, shortly we'll be able to with the assistance of the uh, central land council actually engage more regularly with the local people and help bring them along their understanding along and i think through that process they will become much more supportive hmm. i guess some people some traditional owners might say they're trying to educate you on what is happening on, on their country mm. um, in terms of the water. Are you, are you taking on their considerations? Absolutely. We, we had some very, very encouraging uh, 
engagement, if you like, with the traditional owners uh, early in early in our planning stage. So we took their concerns and their recommendations on board. It was a very positive engagement at the time. Um, <clears throat> so we've been taking that on board. Uh, we were very conscious of the need to uh, not to harm sacred sites, for example. Um, we've obtained ARPA certi- an ARPA certificate, which we will extend to make sure that it absolutely covers the any the whole area of potential uh, drawdown impact across the across the single station area. But it's an education thing. We need to we need to get closer. We need to get the the uh, the assistance of the Central Land Council to engage more directly with the local people, so that we can not only educate them about the project, but we can they can educate us about uh, their main concerns. And as I said, we we are really committed to having the local TOs involved in designing the the monitoring program and helping us manage the environment. This project, it's been referred to the NT Environmental Protection Authority. They've got several hundred pages (coughs) of documents that uh, you've put together. Mm -hmm. Where is that assessment at? um, uh, And when do you hope to to get things running in Singleton, all going (coughs) to plan? Yes, Dan, we we submitted our application to the EPA back at the end of uh, October last year. Um, it's still going through its assessment period and public consultation period. Uh, normally that's a 20-day uh, process. Uh, we discussed that with the EPA and recommended that it be extended, partly because it was being submitted relatively soon before Christmas, um, partly because it is a very comprehensive um, submission. So it's actually well over a 1,000 pages uh, of, uh, of reports, technical reports and others, and environmental impact assessment reports, uh, economic impact assessment, social impact assessment, etc. So uh, that's going through that process till mid-February, 13th of February. We will learn some six weeks later uh, what level of formal assessment by the EPA will be required. Our hope is that um, we will go through a a process that delivers environmental approval um, early in the second half of this year, that would be our hope, but it's out of our control, of course. It's in, in the hands of the regulators. And um, if that happens, and if we get a positive outcome from the judicial review of our water licence, then we're hopeful of actually having the approvals in place to start the project later this year. Peter Wood is the chairman of Fortune Agribusiness. He was speaking with Dan Fitzgerald about the Singleton Station Horticultural Project. Submissions to the EPA about Singleton's project are open until Monday the 13th of February. Quarter to one on the Country Hour. Let's get knee deep with the Zach Brown Band. Zach Brown Band and Knee Deep, it's 12 to 1. G'day, it's Trent here from Catherine and I'm here feeding Old Mate the Crocodile. Yes, Old Mate is actually his name. He's 2.4 metres and he's a saltwater crocodile. You wouldn't want to meet one of these fellas late at night. Take it easy, you're listening to the Country Hour. Good to have you along today. Chief Minister Natasha Files says no gas production will occur in the Beachley Basin until all of the Pepper Inquiry's recommendations are implemented. The NT government had promised all of the recommendations would be in place by the end of 2022. But according to the NT government's website, 35 recommendations are yet to be completed. Here's what Natasha Files told Joe Laverty this morning. 
So I need to be clear, there will be no production of gas in the Beetaloo until all of those recommendations are in place. Uh, there was the final report was from Dr. Uh, from Dave Ritchie um, at the end of January. Uh, the departments are working through those final recommendations and making sure that they are being fully implemented. But there will be no production until the recommendations are implemented. So how many recommendations are yet to be implemented? I would have to check that specific, but it was around making sure all 135 will be in place and it was just finalising um, around that report, that final report from Dave Ritchie, because that's the independent accountability for us. So we've been having six-month reports on those um, recommendations and that final report came through at the end of December uh, and the departments are making sure that they have uh, concluded the work that they should have done. Recommendation 9.8 is the really tricky one. So this is the one that requires the Northern Territory to ensure there is no net increase to Australia's emissions as a result of onshore gas development. There is another report that you're waiting from. Uh, the viability of this report is being looked at by Jazeera, which is an arm of the CSIRO, which it has to be said is partially funded by gas companies. And you've asked them for some advice on how to achieve 9.8. That report and advice was meant to be released on December 2021. Why has that report been delayed more than 12 months? I'll have to check into the specifics of that, Joe. I'm sorry, I don't have that information in front of me. Well, but in if, terms if, of the offsets, we absolutely acknowledge the Northern Territory cannot offset. If the East Coast, it's great for them. They can come in and say, we're going to ban fracking, we're not going to do this. Oh, but by the way, Northern Territory, we want your gas to power our energy system. So that's the balance. And the Commonwealth Government absolutely know that uh, if they want to utilise gas from the Beetaloo to supply energy into the East Coast, they have to help with the offsetting of the carbon emissions. So what if the report that you get back eventually, and obviously it's taking your time to figure it out because it's very difficult, what if the report says 9.8 is not possible? 9.8 has to be implemented before you'll see production of gas from the Beetaloo. We've already acknowledged in the Northern Territory we could not offset those emissions, that it's something that would have to be done at a national level, and that's why we need to work in with the Commonwealth. And where are they up to, the Commonwealth, on 9.8? So we saw in the Energy and Emissions Bilateral Agreement that was signed last year that the Commonwealth acknowledged those emissions need to be offset, uh, and that's work, as I said, it's around production, how much is being produced, what would be the carbon impact, and how would you offset that? And that's something the Commonwealth have to help us to achieve before you'll see production. Have you spoken to Chris Bowen recently? I haven't spoken to him recently, but my ministers certainly have. I have met with him on this issue since he became the minister. And in terms of um, around you know carbon offset, we, we all acknowledge we must go to renewable energy. Absolutely. Australia-wide, worldwide, it, climate change is real. We're feeling the impacts. And so these are the complexities of ensuring electricity right now now, whilst we transition as quickly as we can across to renewable energy. Chief Minister Natasha Files speaking with Joe Laverty on ABC Darwin this morning. Eight to one. Mining magnate Gina Reinhart has made a significant investment in a company trying to get a rare earths mine going in central Australia. Dan Fitzgerald's what can you tell us? Yeah, so Gina Reinhart has this week finalised uh, the tipping in of $16 million into mining company Arafura Resources. Uh, this is the company that's got these big plans to build a billion-dollar rare earth mine at Nolan's Bore. It's about 130 k's to the north of Alice Springs. Um, yeah, so Gina Reinhart has now increased her stake in the company from 8% to just over 10%. Um, and this week, uh, the Arafura Resources uh, it put out a bit of a statement about uh, the months to come, and it said it was aiming to start early earthworks at Nolan's Bore in the first quarter 
of this year. Um, Gavin Lockyer, the managing director there, he said in a statement that Nolans is the most advanced and de-risk rare earth development on a project scale outside of China. So, yeah, we could be seeing some work on the ground at Nolans Bore in the coming months. And an increased stake, so backing it, Gina Reinhart. Yeah, Gina Reinhart, yeah. Uh, she now owns 10% of that company, um, put in a further $16 million worth of uh, shares in this week. Thank you very much for that, Dan. It's seven to one. While we're talking about Gina Reinhart, you might have heard the news that her Pilbara iron ore mine, Roy Hill, is set to become the largest single autonomous mine in the world. From March this year, the mine will convert its mixed fleet of 96 haulage trucks into driverless vehicles. The project has once again thrust automation in the mining industry into the spotlight. Dr Fiona Haslam-McKenzie is a Winthrop professor at the University of Western Australia and she's specialised in the socio-economic factors of regional economies Having researched that area for over 20 years, her work has led towards automation and she says it provides multiple benefits to large-scale mining. It really manages risk. It certainly minimises surprises and it's much more, uh, I guess, efficient in terms of labour force management. And in times such as now when we have a very tight labour market, it's not surprising that technology would be harnessed. But also it enables quite difficult to get resources to be better managed. So the the safety aspect is, is really quite significant. And it means that companies are able to move in, move out relatively quickly What's left behind is not nearly as um, onerous to manage. So mine closure, what do you do with the assets after closure? And those are the things that, of course, I'm very interested in in my professional life. It's the way of the world. Uh, It's not for all companies because they don't necessarily have the economies of scale, but also it has to be viable. So whatever assets you have and you can apply it. Fiona, obviously sites can't be completely robotic. I suspect most workers remain. Do sites lose many workers to automation? Probably yes, but then the reality is that the the scale of mining in Australia has escalated exponentially over the last 25 years. So we haven't actually lost anyone. We're just desperate to get more people in it. We need automation because we just, if we're going to continue the scale um, and the pace of change, then something has to give and, and clearly technology provides many of the solutions. Your area of expertise is more so the socioeconomic factors uh, of towns. So if this is the way that mining companies are heading, obviously it's quite profitable for them, but what does it do to the towns that surround these mines? Well, the towns that surround the mines, you know, increasingly they're centralising. So you've got a much bigger Caratha, a much bigger Port Hedland. So those towns, I mean, they're growing, they're Housing is a massive problem wherever we go, but most particularly in mining towns. So it's not as though those towns aren't growing. They're just not becoming regional cities. But the scale of growth, and we are talking about resources, resources do eventually run out. That's the the, the big cost. What do mining companies do when the resources have gone? 
Closure is a very difficult task. It's a very expensive task. And if you if towns have a whole range of services, a whole range of houses that are no longer lived in, then that is a big problem, not just for the town, not just for the government, but, you know, you've got health issues. It's it's a very complex problem. So automation uh, has many benefits in other places. So you've got uh, a whole range of very sophisticated skills that come with automation. They're high value. So Caratha and Port Hedland probably won't have a big automated hub, but uh, I don't think they're going to lose out. Dr Fiona Hasler-McKenzie speaking with Mark Foreman about her perspective on the future of automation in mining. That's after uh, Gina Reinhart's Pilbara Iron Ore Mine, Roy Hill, was announced. It's set to become the single largest autonomous mine in the world. Two minutes to one on the country hour. Hey, did you hear about this one? A man was bitten on the leg by a crocodile while he was collecting croc eggs on a station near Daly River yesterday. He's undergoing surgery at Royal Darwin Hospital for significant fractures in his leg. Here's Andy Thomas from St John's Ambulance explaining the incident to Joe Laverty. Around uh, midday yesterday, our triple zero call centre received a, a phone call from uh, a remote area out in the sort of Daly River region and um, just advising of uh, a person in their late 20s that had been uh, sort of attacked by a croc and, and obviously due to the remote location, they were able to get them into a helicopter and they've flown them to a, a helipad up at um, East Arm area where met our uh, uh, ambulance crews and an intensive care paramedic and uh, took took the crew uh, about a, you know, a reasonable time there to stabilise that patient before they uh, urgently transported them through to hospital. He had quite some uh, serious and significant leg injuries, uh, fractures from from the crocodile attack. So, obviously, being in hospital and being treated, so uh, yeah, something a bit interesting. And um, obviously, you know, uh, great work done by the crews and then the people to get the person, um, you know, up to Darwin. Lordy, is he going to be able to keep all his limbs? Uh, look, I'm not sure. Obviously, the, the hospital, are, you know, um, do an amazing job in terms of trying to, um, you know, treat those injuries. But yes, and obviously, some significant fractures from the from the um, you know crocodile attack there. Andy Thomas from St John's Ambulance with Joe Laverty speaking about that incident yesterday. A man collecting croc eggs on a station near Daly River yesterday, bitten on the leg by a crocodile. NT WorkSafe is investigating the incident. Heading off to the one o'clock news shortly. After that, I wonder if you've enjoyed any lychees this season. It's a bumper season for them, apparently. You'll find out why after the news. It's one o'clock. Yo, what's going on, everybody? My name is Gilambanu, aka Bolabaro, Nareyako, Rilipirbanu. Yo. Yo, my name is Davis, Wirpanda, and I'm from Baniala. I work at Kulukula. My Yulmu name is Wadon. I'm a Yulmu man. And you're listening to Country Hour. Hello, hello. Michelle Stanley here with you for the Country Hour this Friday, Arvo. Good to have you with me. One thing I've noticed in the last couple of months in the Territory is just how many people aren't from here. I mean, weren't born here. People who have come to visit the Territory for a week or two and they've stuck around decades later. Before half past one, you'll get a taste of life in the Territory from one of those people who's not from here but thoroughly enjoying it. She's from the South. Loved it. Yeah, so wild and rogue and 
still got that untouched, you know, untamed sort of feel and energy and beautiful, yeah. I mean, it's hot. It is hot. It's something else. And at the same time, I think you just throw yourself into it and you do the best you can. I mean, it's nice to hear what things look like from someone who doesn't get to experience it all the time. You can hear the love she has for the Territory. We'll talk about that before half past one. First, though, good afternoon to the Bureau of Meteorology's Rebecca Patrick. Um, well, we just heard about the heat from Grace there. What's the weather looking like today, Rebecca? Yeah, good afternoon, Michelle. Uh, today we're a little bit slower getting started in terms of those showers and storms. Um, got a bit of a cloud band in the south over the Tanami and Lassiter districts, just a bit patchy at the moment. Um, but apart from that, some showers are just starting to pop up around the Gregory district and, and northern parts of the, the top end um, and also in the... Um, the western parts of the Lassiter district this afternoon. Um, but, yeah, expecting more showers and storms right throughout the Territory um, this afternoon. Uh, pretty warm temperatures, as as you mentioned, um, uh, across the, the top end. Currently, um, Catherine is sitting on an, uh, about 34 degrees, uh, Darwin at 32 um, and Tennant Creek at the moment at 33 and Alice Springs at 36 degrees. So, um, yeah, some warmer temperatures out there, um, but hopefully get some cooling showers coming through. Fingers crossed. Was there much rain in the last 24 hours? Uh, the highest we had was at Banban Springs in the, the western top end. Uh, got 60 millimetres, uh, most of that from a storm late yesterday afternoon. I saw some sort of patchy fall, so nothing super widespread. What's, what are you expecting over the next few days, rainfall-wise? Yeah, so um, I guess across the, the top end, uh, for starters, we're expecting a trough to move into the top end late tomorrow. Um, so that could bring some increased rainfall Sunday, Monday, um, as that moves across. Uh, and in the southern parts of the Territory, um, there's a, a trough over Western Australia that's going to be approaching the southwestern parts of the Territory late today. Um, so a risk of some severe th thunderstorms over the next few days, potentially dropping some heavy falls. Um, so that's just something to be mindful of. Um, and potentially with some damaging wind gusts as well over the the southwestern parts um, of the Lassiter district over the next over the weekend. Um, so yeah, probably fairly widespread rainfall across the south, looking at about um, up to about 25, 30 millimeters. Um, but with those thunderstorms, we could get higher falls as well. I just didn't turn my microphone on. I was going to say they'll enjoy the follow-up rain. Um, yeah, just what, a couple of weeks from, from the, the bigger rains they had, which is good to hear. How about the coastal waters for people keen to drop a line this weekend? Yeah, so on the coastals, um, pretty light winds at the moment. If we're in um, Darwin Harbour, um, yeah, those winds below about 10 knots, um, probably getting a a swing around to the, the west over the weekend though so a bit of a change in that wind direction um, off the west coast um, east to northeasterly uh, 
today, um, swinging around to the west to southwesterly by Sunday, uh, but again, less than about 10 knots. Um, in the Gulf of Carpentaria, uh, those winds are currently east to southeasterly, um, but tending a bit more um, northeasterly through the weekend. Very good. Thank you for that, Rebecca. Have a lovely weekend. No worries. You too. Rebecca Patrick from the Bureau of Meteorology. It is 10 past one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. A Kimberley pearl farmer is breathing a massive sigh of relief this week after escaping major damage from the recent Fitzroy Valley flooding. Signet Bay Pearl Farm, it operates about 80 kilometres from the mouth of the Fitzroy River. So when the huge volumes of fresh water flowing out of the river into the ocean... He feared that water, and with it a change in water salinity, could be deadly for his pearl oysters. Managing Director James Brown says he's relieved there's been no significant damage. The worst case scenario for the pearling industry, if you're in a sheltered bay and you get a freshwater wedge that's thick enough, so maybe three metres or four metres, that means all your your long lines and your pearl oysters that are hung two or three metres below your long lines actually then sit in pure fresh water and if that happens then all of the pearl oysters die really kind of instantly in the in the next probably day you'd find that the whole farm would would fail so that that kept me awake worrying for about a week whilst the whole thing was unfolding and all that crazy amount of flood water was rushing down from the Fitzroy through Willaire and then we just really quite closely monitored every day the salinity and and the water change and also stayed in contact with Cone Bay the Barramundi guys and the pearl farm on the other side of King Sound and you know we were just quite amazed that we didn't see that huge change in salinity which when you think about it the amount of fresh water coming in one end of the relatively enclosed sound like king sound is hard to understand to be honest i'm a bit bewildered why we haven't seen the the level of impact but i'm very happy that it unfolded that way it, it appears that most of it is just really running straight out through the middle of the king sound and sort of taking all the debris and, and all the poor old dead cows and everything else that's been flushed out with it sort of straight through the middle of the king sound and and the areas either side of it have, have escaped the bulk of it at this stage mm, that's so good to hear do you have any theories as to why that that might have happened and why you might be in the clear i think it's really to do with the fact that the weather system after the flood event was quite calm there hasn't been very strong winds and we've also had when it was happening we had reasonably large tide seals so we were still in a, uh, a spring tide phase of the month so i think those two things contributed so that it was a very sort of direct flow out through king sound into the open ocean as opposed to pushing it one way or another and i think what happened 20 odd years ago was that you know we probably had some southeast winds as that water was coming out and sort of those southeast winds typically push that water from the derby area up towards signet bay and so we had big trees and dead cows and all that kind of stuff being tangled in our farm and causing all kinds of problems where touch wood to this point we haven't seen that but the guys that are going across the sound regularly to and from signet bay to cone bay they're actually seeing it in the middle of the sound so it just seems like it's not being pushed one way or another and you know that's kind of just lucky really Mm. so are you confident that risk has completely passed now 
I'm confident we're not going to see an instant mortality event from the fresh water, which is fantastic. What I can't say is, you know, because this is obviously the largest flood event now, it sets a new record. I can't say if there's any other sort of subtle effects from any other kind of water quality, you know, whatever's been run off, uh, even temperature drops. You know, there's been some fairly severe temperature drops with this low, a few other things. But those kind of more subtle stress events that aren't obvious, Pink Tata Maxima, it's an unusual, massive oceanic oyster. If it does suffer a critical stress event, sometimes it can take, you know, a month or two for that to actually be visually displayed by the oyster actually finally dying. So it's a bit of a wait and see, but we've just gone into various husbandry modes. So we're, we're being super gentle with the way we operate on the farm right now and, you know, making sure we don't stress the, the oysters out any more than normal and, so, yeah, it's a waiting game, but um, this certainly sets a new benchmark for the industry, certainly the industry within King Sound, to, you know, a freshwater event. So hopefully we don't have to worry about it again for a long time. Signet Bay Pearls Managing Director James Brown. He was speaking with Steph Sinclair. So some good news. No major losses apparent as a result of the Fitzroy Valley floodwater running out into the ocean right near that pearl farm. It gets a little bit testy for them given the impact of the salinity, but... It's worked out so far. Quarter past one on the Country Hour. I've got some great news for lychee fans. This season, you're likely to see more lychees in your supermarkets for longer. This year's harvest has been delayed and growers have had bumper crops. Megan Hughes has this story. At Crystal Caton's 5,000-tree lychee farm in central Queensland, workers are busy picking and packing fruit. An unusual sight this time of year, as they've normally finished the harvest by now. But even with a delayed start, Miss Caton is not complaining. This year we've had the greatest season that we could have asked for in the last seven years of owning our orchard, and uh, we're at 120 tonne and a little bit more to go until we're finished. Good yields have been seen across central and southern growing regions. Australian Lychee Growers Association President Derek Foley farms near Bundaberg and he says tonnages have improved across the board. Now in my own situation I'm, I'm probably, it'll be a record crop here too, probably 40% up on what I've ever done before and not many more trees uh, online. So yeah, look, you know, volume-wise, I think you know most most people say from from rocky south would been very solid crops. Uh, the northern areas were good without being you know, record-breaking, and I think you know the Nambour area they're 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 pretty buoyant there too. That when they finally get started, there'll be there'll be plenty of fruit. Cooler temperatures and wet weather last year stretched well into spring, resulting in the fruit developing later than normal, according to Mr Foley. The winter that, that we experienced here was, was a long, cool winter, but it was a, it was a wet winter too. The flowering was, was, well, it started reasonably early, but the gestation period of going from flowering through to fruit set was incredibly long. You know, that was the setup basically. And we do get that a little bit sometimes, but then you get a fairly warm, you know, hot summer and things catch up. But because this summer's been quite mild, things just haven't caught up. Ms Caton says they're about 10 days behind, but fruit quality remains strong and they've been able to space out their production more evenly. The fruit have set really well this year. We've been able to pick our number of varieties over six weeks allows us to uh, start with an early variety, finish that variety before moving on to the next variety as they ripen within the six weeks. So it really expands our market having a number of varieties that have uh, all produced really well this year. With production up, a large portion of Miss Caton's crop is being exported to the US. 
There is a big market over there that seems to be growing for us. Um, we, we are at Lush Lychees, we're part of a, an export group and together as a group there's a number of growers who are participating in this pilot program for lychees within Australia. The market over there is growing so we like to just be a part of that because we have a large number of lychees. The US is becoming an increasingly important destination for Australian lychees as Mr Foley explains. The US market is something that's been developed over the last probably six years I guess. So prior to that we had a very big focus you know, on, on Hong Kong, you know, in, into China. But with the political uh, disagreements between our two countries, that market pretty much dried up overnight. But fortunately we, we had the foresight to, uh, to prime that American market some years before. And while it was only quite small when the Chinese uh, market collapsed, we were able to ramp up the, the amount of fruit going into the US. And so it was a seamless transition really. That market is the one that's, that's grown exponentially. That's, that's probably where our future is. That is. There's a healthy balance between export you know, and domestic fruit. It's around about 22% gets exported from the national crop. I think the trick is that we've, we've got to maintain that balance as, as some of the farms get bigger and so on, and those that aren't exporting have to get interested in it so that, so that we maintain you know, a good, healthy price domestically. Australian Lychee Growers Association President Derek Foley ending that report from Megan Hughes. It's 19 past one. Let's get some music from Luke Combs. Beer never broke my heart. Luke Combs, beer never broke my heart. It's 22 past one. G'day, my name's Amy Snowden. I celebrate Australian agriculture using Lego and you're listening to The Country Hour. Yes, you are. Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. And there's just a couple of hours left to nominate yourself or maybe someone you know for the 2023 NT Rural Women of the Year Award. The winner receives a $15,000 grant to support a project of her choice. She'll also get to complete a professional development course of her choosing and will go on to represent the Territory at the National Awards in Canberra in September. Here's what last year's NT winner Kylie Jones says about why women should nominate. It's just been such an incredible experience. Not only do you have access to that $15,000, but I think there's so much more to this award from the networking and opportunity to meet some incredible women um, and other like-minded professionals. Um, the exposure you get um, for your project is just incredible and it's just been such a great opportunity to clarify and refine the ideas of our organisation. So I couldn't recommend the experience highly enough. Kylie Jones is a Territory teacher and founder of Raise Education and she was last year's winner of the NT AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. If you do want to nominate, you can nominate yourself or someone else. I know people like to be a little bit humble and not nominate themselves for these things. But to find out more, just put AgriFutures Rural Women's Award into your search engine and it should pop up. 24 past one. Over the wet season, a lot of station workers leave the NT. They like to go and have a break. But for Grace McLeod from Carbine Park near Catherine, she's sticking it out in her very first year here in the Territory. She's been keeping busy out in the paddock with cattle and cropping. The young Victorian took Max Rowley through her work 
and explained how she found herself in the NT. So I was honestly just travelling around and a good friend of mine from WA in Perth, she was doing the contract work out at the dune and they were really short-staffed and she was just after some more staff and asked if I was interested in, in joining them on the team. They wanted to cook and they were short in their stock camp and I said I'd love to and I just jumped in the car, started up the troopie, took my dog and we just headed to Lejeune from Port Headland. Yeah. What were your first impressions of the Territory? Loved it. Yeah, it's so wild and rogue and still got that untouched, you know, untamed sort of feel and energy and beautiful yeah yeah and that's coming from a a farming background growing up in country victoria yep country victoria so just you know big red gums and and vast space to then pandanas and and creeks and and flooding rivers and and all sorts so it's been a quite a change of scenery and how about the the ag sector more broadly though how does how does that compare in the territory to to what you know yeah oh gosh I think the territory is going forward in so many ways in the ag sector like I think there's so much potential up here and there's already there's already so much going on um but it's I find it so so interesting having known nothing to be honest like I never I probably never really took a big interest in what was going on in the territory you know there's always stuff a lot of stuff going on back home in Victoria and and other states with with farming practices and whatnot. So all the, this territory farming and agriculture is all very new to me. Um, so it's all very exciting and and, and at the same time foreign. Um, so yeah, it's I, I feel like I can't speak on it too much because I'm still getting my head around it. Even though it's still the same similar practices, it's all new in its own way. What is some of the work that you've been doing here? Yeah, so we've been seeding, so we've been putting in a wet season crop, um, which is quite new to me. You know, this time of year we're harvesting down south and we're pulling our boots off at the end of the year and, and tucking them away for a bit after we've had a long season. And Whereas at the moment we're busy, busy getting the crop in and we're putting cavalcade in for hay. And, and yeah, that's all new to me too. I'm not too familiar with hay. We do barley and, and wheat back home and canola and, and things like that. So yeah, doing a hay crop and, and getting that in for the wet and, and hoping that it gets good yields and gets good rain and all those things. And, and where there's farming, there's always challenges. Um, what have been some of the unique challenges that you've faced um, living in the Territory though? Um, probably the heat. <laughs> I mean, it's hot. It is hot. It's something else. And at the same time, I think you just throw yourself into it and you do the best you can. You try and look after yourself the best you can and keep hydrated and keep sun smart. But it's still hot and it's challenging in itself. And there's definitely days I'd like to just go to sleep under the air con. <laughs> but yeah, that's probably the main one. And from anyone from down south or living in other states that does, you know, is maybe thinking about giving the, the territory a shot, um, what would your advice be from someone who's done it? Yeah, go for it. I think I think throw yourself in. It's an amazing, amazing place and I think there's some really interesting, wonderful characters up here and I think 
if you're keen and, and interested in, in ag or, or anything, you know, up here, I think throw yourself in and, and, and visit and explore it because it is a wonderful, wonderful place. And, you know, even though it has its challenges with the heat and things like that, I think having that experience is se- itself is also a wonderful and unique thing. And, yeah, I think definitely go for it, 100%. Yeah. And so you didn't expect to find yourself necessarily in the Territory, but I take it that you're glad you did. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, I'm happy as. Can you see it in my face? (laughs) You can hear it in her voice, can't you? That's Grace McLeod. She's been working at Carbine Park near Catherine, sticking it out for the summer. And we're speaking there with Max Rowley. She paints such a beautiful picture of life in the north. That is it from me for the country hour in the top end. I'm heading back to the Pilbara after two months up here. Matt Bran will be back on your wireless on Monday. A huge thanks to executive producer Dan Fitzgerald for his support behind the scenes on the show the last couple of months. Thanks for having me. I hope to be back again soon. It's 1.30.